Hello, everyone. Welcome to Creative Bio Labs new webinar. And uh, the Creative Bio Labs is a CRO providing service such as in virtual screening of siRNA and itensense oligonucleotide and the development of viral uh, vector based on gene delivery system, especially the lentivector, adenovirus vector and adeno-associated virus vector. Our scientists have years of experience providing reliable service to customers worldwide. As you may probably aware, the theme of today's webinar is development of gene therapy for genetic hearing loss. According to the WHO, hearing loss is the most common neurological disorder worldwide, affecting approximately 400 million people. Uh, currently, the most frequently used treatment for hearing disorders involves hearing rehabilitation using the hearing device. Recent advances in gene therapy provided a promising treatment modality for genetic hearing loss by overcoming the functional deficits caused by the underlying genetic mutations. Thus, gene therapy is capable of restoring the hearing functions. We have invited Dr. Jeffrey Holt to talk about how gene therapy has become a promising treatment for genetic hearing loss and how his team developed unique gene therapy strategies for genetic hearing loss. And our speaker today, Dr. Jeffrey Holt, he's the professor and the director of research in the Department of Otorigology at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. His lab studies the genetic and physiology of sensory hair cells in the inner ear and uh, uh, has contributed to the identification of TMC1 as the protein that converts the sounds into the electrical signals in the inner ear. Translation work in Dr. Hall's lab is focused on the gene therapy for genetic hearing loss using the gene replacement, gene editing, and base editing. He earned his PhD at the University of Rochester in 1995 and has been working in the field for the past 25 years. It's our great pleasure that we were able to invite Dr. Hall to present his recent findings in our webinar series. So before Dr. Hall starts his presentation, I just want to quickly remind our audience that we will have a Q&A section at the end of the presentation. And if you have any questions during the presentation, please type your questions into the Q&A panel and Dr. Hart will get to them after his talk is finished. Now, let's welcome Dr. Jeffrey Hart. And Dr. Hart, thank you for presenting your important findings to us today. The floor is yours. 
Great, thank you very much. Thank you for that kind introduction and the invitation to be with you all today. Um, I would like to begin by sharing my screen. Let's see if I can do that here, just a moment. All right, hopefully you can see that now. Great, so I would like to tell you about some of our progress on developing gene therapies for genetic hearing loss. And before I jump into the, the new therapeutic modalities we've been developing, I, I'd like to give a little bit of background, some context on the inner ear and the problem that we're facing. So hearing loss, as was mentioned in the introduction, is the most common neurological disorder worldwide. It affects up to 400 million people at the moment, according to estimates by the World Health Organization. And by the year 2050, that number is expected to grow to over a billion. We think that up to 50% of hearing loss may have a genetic basis and the other fraction being due to uh, acquired hearing loss, overexposure to loud sounds, uh, toxic uh, chemicals and so forth. But 50% having a genetic cause excuse me, by retirement age, we think that one in three individuals suffers from hearing loss. And again, some of that can be genetic, some of it being acquired. Of course, this leads to loss of communication abilities, uh, decrease in quality of life, can lead to depression and dementia. The standards of care thus far are devices that have been developed such as hearing aids, which function to amplify sound and depend on some residual auditory function, or for patients who are profoundly deaf, the cochlear implant provides some uh, ability to, to regain auditory function. But both hearing aids and cochlear implants are, are not completely effective in restoring natural hearing, and they're not effective for all patients. Unfortunately, there are no biological treatments for hearing loss. And so that's where my lab has come in and been focused on developing biological treatments, gene therapies in particular for genetic hearing loss. So let's take a moment to think about the structures and the anatomy of the inner ear. This is a sensory hair cell of a vestibular organ. The sensory hair cell is the mechanosensitive cell in the ear that converts the physical movement induced by sound or head movements in the, the vestibular organs into electrical signals that are transmitted to the brain. Within the human inner ear, the hair cells reside within the spiral shaped cochlea that you can see right here. And there's about 16,000 sensory hair cells within this cochlea organ. And there are about 30,000 hair cells within the vestibular organs, again, that mediate our sensitivity to head movements, rotational head movements within these semicircular canals and linear head movements and gravity within the otolith organs of the utricle and the saccule. And so because the human inner ear organs are embedded in the temporal bone, the densest bone of the body, these, these cells are really inaccessible. And so as a model, we often use the mouse. The mouse is a good model system. The anatomy, which is pictured right here in an X-ray is, is quite similar to that of the human, a bit smaller scale, but at the cellular and genetic level, we think it's, it's quite uh, a good model system. And so we can excise the cochlear tissue from the mouse and we can image it. And so here's a scanning electron micrograph showing one row of 
what's known as inner hair cells and three rows of outer hair cells. I've colored the cell bodies blue here so that you can see those a bit more clearly. The inner hair cells transmit 95% of the auditory information to the brain, whereas the outer hair cells have the unique function uh, driving cochlear amplification. This is a process that allows the inner ear to adjust the gain. It can actually physically amplify the activity of the cochlea or dampen it down if it needs to turn down the volume, for example, and it can allow for tuning in the inner ear. So these are critical functions for the normal hearing ear. And so all of these functions depend on this mechanosensitive organelle, the hair bundle, which consists of an array of mechanosensitive microvilli that will move back and forth in response to a sound stimulus. And so the model for the way we think this occurs is that there are these modified microvilli that contain mechanosensitive ion channels. And when these hair bundles swing back and forth, it's this motion, which I plot right here in the form of a sine wave stimulus that gets converted into an electrical current that flows into the cell as the bundle swings back and forth. That electrical current is eventually transmitted through a chemical synapse at the base of the cell and through a series of action potentials that propagate to the brain. The way we think this occurs is there's a series of, of uh, mechanisms here at the tips of these individual stereocilia. And when this deflects, there's a mechanosensitive ion channel that opens, allowing ions to flow into the cell carried primarily by calcium and potassium. Several of these molecules have been identified at the molecular level. This tip link structure conveys tension and is composed of cadherins 23 and protocadherin 15. This motor molecule provides feedback to this mechanosensitive apparatus and is composed of myosin 7A. These incidentally are all Usher syndrome proteins. So they carry mutations that affect both the ear and eyes and lead to deafness and blindness. This ion channel protein has been a big question mark in the field for over 40 years and has been a focus of intense research. I've been fortunate that my lab has been a part of discovery of this ion channel. And recently, a few years ago, we published what we think was the landmark paper showing that TMC1 forms the ion channel pore in sensory hair cells. And so this is what we think the molecule looks like. This is a computer model, uh, but it's based on a, a structure of a similar ion channel. We think there are four transmembrane domains pictured here in blue that line the ion channel pore. And so this would be the outside of the cell. This is the inside of the cell. And so ions propagate right down here through this permeation pathway to drive sensory transduction and initiate this, this uh, perception of sound. So we now think we can replace this question mark with TMC1. We've been interested in this understanding the basic biology as well as from developing a therapeutic because it turns out that the TMC1 gene carries a number of mutations that lead to genetic hearing loss in humans. Pictured here is the gene structure for TMC1 and 
at least 70 mutations have been identified to date. 65 of those pictured in black are recessive loss of function mutations, and four or five pictured in red lead to dominant progressive hearing loss. And so we've been interested to develop gene therapy strategies that might be able to treat some of the patients affected by this. And in terms of numbers, we estimate there's eight to 10,000 patients in the United States, maybe 160,000 patients worldwide who carry TMC1 mutations and have associated hearing loss. And so one general strategy for this, particularly for the recessive loss of function would be gene replacement where there's a recessive mutation leading to a dysfunctional protein in the disease phenotype. The idea is to replace that, providing a functional DNA sequence that leads to functional protein and correction of that disease phenotype. And so we've been focused on this strategy over the years, and we've come up with several different approaches. First in 2015, then again, 2019, 2021, and just a few weeks ago, our most recent iteration of TMC1 gene therapy. And one of the key developments along this process has been identification of viral vectors that are very good at targeting the sensory hair cells of the inner ear. And we've identified one in particular known as AAV9PHPB, originally developed at Caltech, but we found that this is very efficient for getting into the sensory cells of the ear. So these are the inner hair cells I showed you earlier, and this is with a virus containing green fluorescent protein. We get 100% of the inner hair cells transduced with this vector. The outer hair cells shown right here, we get also very high efficiency, 90 to 95% of those cells. And so showing this at higher magnification, you can see that again here with green fluorescent protein. We've also done this, uh, this was all in the mouse, but we've done this in uh, non-human primates. At least a colleague of mine has done this, shown that this is very efficient in non-human primate cochleas. Again, the inner hair cells being transduced in the apex, middle, and basal regions of the cochlea, both inner and outer hair cells. We've also done it in human tissue. So this is not injected in human ears, but human tissue that has been biopsied during a surgical procedure, that human tissue we've been able to maintain in a dish, keep it alive, apply our viral vectors, and we see that the same synthetic AAV9 PHPB driving GFP can target the sensory hair cells in a dish in a human tissue. And so we think that this vector may be a, a suitable capsid for use in humans in vivo. But instead of just turning cells green, we've wanted to generate therapeutic constructs. And so the idea in this case is to use the wild type TMC1 sequence, introduce that into inner ears of mice and restore sensory transduction. Now wiggling hair bundles, like I showed you previously, from a mouse carrying a TMC1 mutation, we see no responses. These flat lines suggest there's a lack of cellular uh, transduction of a mechanical stimulus. But when we reintroduce the TMC1 gene, we find that we can restore normal looking responses in these examples shown here. We also show that the sensitivity is identical to that of a wild type mouse in terms of the steepness of these stimulus response curves. So that showed recovery at the cellular level. 
Next, we wanted to look at the level of the whole organ. So we look at something called an auditory brainstem response. So this is placing scalp electrodes on the back of the head and we place sounds into the ear of the mouse. This is the same thing that would be used in the clinic to assess a human auditory function. And in a, a mouse with a genetic hearing loss with a TMC1 mutation, the flat lines here indicate that there is no activity, there's no response. And so this animal is profoundly deaf, even for some of the loudest sounds on this decibel scale here up to 110 dB. Shown here on the right are a family of traces from a normal hearing mouse. And what we see here is that around 25 to 30 decibels, we begin to see responses, the little wiggly responses. This is the, the compound activity going through the eighth cranial nerve to the brain and various brainstem nuclei being excited. So this family of traces shows the mouse has a hearing threshold of about 35 decibels. Now, if we take a TMC1 mutant mouse and introduce our AAV TMC1 gene therapy, we find that we can restore responses in some cases with thresholds identical to those of wild type mice. So this is really encouraging and uh, shows that we're getting responses. Previously, I showed you at the cellular level at the whole organ level. And so next we wanted to look at the behavioral level. And so in a mouse, what we can do is look at an auditory uh, startle response. And so like a human would be startled if you sneak up behind them and play a sudden loud sound, the mouse will also be startled and a mouse will jump. And so a normal hearing mouse jumps, a deaf mouse does not respond at all. But after introduction of our gene therapy, the mice begin to jump again. And so we can quantify that with sound level shown here below. Here are the deaf mice, no matter how loud a sound, we see no responses. Normal mice begin to jump and we can quantify that here shown in black. And after introduction of our gene therapy, we see that these mice begin to respond again. So this is the kind of strategy we've been using to develop these gene therapies over the years. And I'd just like to walk you through the progress that we've made. Our first example of recovery of function was back in 2015. And so we got some recovery. These are elevated thresholds, but an improvement compared to a completely deaf animal. Using a newer capsid known as ANK80, we got a further improvement. And using the PHPB vector that I mentioned previously, we've been able to improve upon that. We've optimized this further using a different promoter, in this case, a CB6, which is based on the chicken beta actin promoter. And then our most recent data shows that we're getting recovery of auditory thresholds that are back to wild type levels across the frequency domain, all the way up to the high frequency end as well, which can be quite challenging. So we're really encouraged by this progress. And now we think that this construct right here, the PHPB capsid with the CM, uh, CB6 promoter encoding the human version of TMC1 is something that we wanna take forward to the clinic. Now this approach, gene replacement, we wondered whether we could overexpress the wild type gene and overcome the dominant mutations. And when we tried that, in fact, it did not work. So we've had to resort to alternate strategies. And in that, this case, we've decided to go with a gene disruption strategy where a dominant mutation leads to a dysfunctional protein and disease. A gene disruption may silence that dominant mutation, block 
the mutant protein and allow, if you've got a heterozygous, the wild type allele that remains to be effective and, and prevent a, a progressive hearing loss. And so using this strategy, we decided to use a modified CRISPR-Cas approach. And so the, the strategy here is if there's a wild type sequence in a heterozygous animal and a mutant sequence, we used one known as Beethoven, named after the classical music composer Ludwig von Beethoven. In this case, there's a single point mutation. And so our thinking was, let's see if we can disrupt this using CRISPR-Cas, leave the wild type allele intact. And so we screened a number of different guide RNAs as well as several different Cas9s and eventually found one uh, known as SA Cas9. This is Staphylococcus aureus Cas9, the KKH variety, and one guide RNA in particular that was selective for targeting this mutant allele while leaving the wild type allele intact. And so that's quantified just here of the several strategies we screened. This is the one we selected with the highest efficiency, 99% selective for that mutant allele, leaving the wild type allele intact. And so one advantage of using this SA-Cas9 version is that the coding sequence for SA-Cas9 is small enough to fit into a single AAV capsid along with a guide RNA uh, driven by a U6 promoter. So we packaged the entire thing into single AAVs and injected those into the ears of these mice carrying mutations known as, known as Beethoven. And so this is what the hair cells look like in a wild type animal. We're looking at individual hair bundles right here. These are the three rows of outer hair cells, the inner hair cells. And you don't need to be an expert to recognize that the Beethoven animals have disrupted hair bundle morphologies. So because of this single point mutation in the TMC1 gene, the morphology of these hair bundles is badly disrupted. But if we injected our CRISPR-Cas strategy at earlier stages, we found that the hair bundles developed normally. And so we were able to preserve the proper uh, morphology of these hair bundles. And you can see that even more clearly at higher magnification. What about function? So I mentioned that this dominant mutation causes a progressive hearing loss. And so if we look at auditory thresholds over time, four, eight, 12, and 24 weeks of age, we can see that normal hearing mice, these are simply C57 black six mice, they have no change in their auditory thresholds, about 30 decibels as plotted right here. But the Beethoven mice show this progressive hearing loss so that by 24 weeks of age, these animals are profoundly deaf. But if we inject at early postnatal stages with our CRISPR-Cas strategy, we find that we were able to maintain thresholds very close to those of wild type. And we've now gone out to one year post-injection and we see these stable auditory thresholds, suggesting both that we've disrupted that dominant allele and we have not disrupted the wild type allele because you would need that wild type allele to maintain these good auditory thresholds. So we were really encouraged by that result as well. And so we think we've got strategies to target both recessive hearing loss as well as this dominant form of hearing loss. And so in our newest work, we've also taken an approach looking at base editing where we might be able to target either dominant or recessive, a single mutation that leads to a disease phenotype by 
introducing a gene editor, we may be able to base edit that, correct that back to the wild type, and then restore function in this way. And so using a base editing strategy, this is work we've done in collaboration with David Liu's lab. And this was a, a BE4, uh, uh, which I'm not gonna go through the, the exact strategy, but the idea is to actually correct a single mutation, converting it back to the wild type uh, nucleotide in the native genomic DNA. And so we screened several strategies here and, and settled on one in particular that was uh, particularly good. We got up to 45% base editing efficiency with very little uh, indel formation in this case. And so this was the strategy we selected. One of the challenges in this case is that the base editors are actually too large to fit into a single AAV. So we had to come up with a, a strategy for dividing these in two so we could put them into dual AAV vectors. And in this case, we use a CBH promoter and an intine mediated response to allow for recombination of the base editor uh, in duly transduced sensory hair cells. And so within the cochlea, when we injected the, the dual vectors carrying the base editors, we got also uh, about 40% base editing on average. And so looking at hair cell transduction, this was a mouse carrying a, this single point mutation also in the TMC1 gene. This one was known as Baringo. So a family of transduction currents from a Baringo mouse, again, these flat lines indicate there was no sensory transduction in these hair cells. The wild type responses are shown here in the right, but after introduction of the base editor, we found that we could get wild type like responses in most of the cells that we were recording from. And so those are shown right here. A couple of the cells did not show responses. And so we think that those were probably cells that did not receive dual transduction of the base editor and effective uh, or efficient base editing in that case. When we looked at the auditory brainstem responses, the, they were uh, right here for the Baringo mice carrying the, the TMC1 mutation. And after base editing, we found we were able to restore some of the responses, not back to the wild type levels, but uh, we were able to get base editing at some level in these cells. This assay here is not something I've mentioned before. It's called a DPOAE or a distortion product autoacoustic emission. And it's really a measure of outer hair cell function in particular. And what these data showed us with it was that we did not get recovery of outer hair cell function using the base editor. The responses that we did see here were probably due to recovery or base editing in inner hair cells. And so this brings up an interesting point in that AAV vectors that were used in this case were the uh, ANC80 type capsids. And those, so those have been shown to be efficient for transducing inner hair cells, but not so efficient for transducing outer hair cells. And so we think in this case, why that's why uh, the dual vector transduction was not effective at restoring function in outer hair cells. So if we can optimize that, perhaps in theory, we could get better editing, more efficient editing in outer hair cells, better recovery of the DPOAE, and as a result, the ABR as well. So to wrap up the first part of my talk, 
I'd like to summarize by saying that this TMC1 gene is forming the hair cell transduction channel, which is critical for conversion of sound into electrical impulses in hair cells in the inner ear, both the auditory organ and in vestibular organs. We've identified synthetic AAVs, in particular the AAV9 PHPB form of the capsid that can target 95 to 100% of sensory hair cells. Using gene replacement, we think we can recover function, uh, particularly for recessive mutations, and that accounts for, at least for the TMC1 gene, 65 different mutations. Recovering ABR thresholds to wild-type levels, I've, I've written here low frequencies, but now we've done it across the auditory spectrum where we can get recovery to both low, middle, and high-frequency sounds. Using gene disruption, we can use this modified CRISPR-Cas with the AAV uh, PH, uh, sorry, in that case, it was, it was ANC-80, but to deliver the, the CRISPR-Cas SA-Cas9 KKH form to selectively disrupt the, the uh, Beethoven mutation. And base editors can be used to repair either dominant or recessive mutations in vivo. We've shown that we can do that successfully in inner hair cells, I think there's room to improve that targeting outer hair cells with higher efficiency. And so for the, the next few minutes, uh, the second part of the talk, I'd like to switch gears and talk about a different gene and really address this question of dual vector transduction and see if we can't optimize that with, with greater efficiency. And so the gene I'd like to talk about now is one known as STRC. Uh, STRC stands for stereocillin. And this gene is of interest to us because it's a more common form of genetic hearing loss. We think it may account for, for a much higher percentage of genetic hearing loss. And let me just walk you through the phenotype here. So this is some data based on a recent publication from some clinical colleagues of mine here at Boston Children's and at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, where 39 patients were screened 36 of these had homozygous STRC deletions, so these are recessive mutations. Three were compound HETs. All of them had bilateral, affecting both ears, symmetric sensory neural hearing loss. 39% were classified as mild, 52% are moderate, and 3% were moderate to severe at baseline, but they also found that this is a, a progressive hearing loss, and 58% uh, had a gradual decline in auditory function over time. All of the patients had a, a loss of outer hair cell function in particular. So this gene seems to be affecting outer hair cells uh, and the DPOAE assay I mentioned previously in particular, which is necessary for cochlear amplification. Again, that's the, the function that the inner ear uses to adjust volume internally. It can increase the volume for soft sounds, increase sensitivity to soft sounds, and turn down the volume for loud sounds. And it's also important for tuning or allowing frequency dis discrimination. And so trying to get a grasp on just how many patients might be affected here, some of my colleagues here at Boston Children's looked into a database. Uh, this is within the Children's Rare Disease Cohort Initiative. They had 1,200 patients in this database. These were all pediatric patients with high quality exome data and without any evidence of hearing loss. 
And so they identified 22 heterozygous parents, sorry, heterozygous patients who had uh, no, uh, no hearing loss. They were carrying pathogenic mutations in the STRC gene, but, but no actual hearing loss. And so that gave a carrier frequency of about 1.8% of the normal population carrying this recessive mutation in a heterozygote state. And so just based on that carrier frequency, we could then do some simple math and we came up with an estimate of about 100,000 patients in the US who we would expect may have homozygous STRC mutations and have this form of hearing loss. Worldwide, we think that that may account for 2.3 million patients carrying uh, homozygous STRC mutations. And so we were interested to model this and generated a, a mouse using a CRISPR-Cas approach. I won't go through the details of this, but we, we generated this mouse carrying a, a recessive loss of function mutation in the STRC gene as a model for this form of hearing loss known as DFNB16. And so genotyping these mice, we find homozygous animals and could characterize those. And so the STRC protein is located just in the outer hair cells, really at the tips of the hair bundles. And so it's stained here in green. You can see it quite prominently. In our knockout mouse, we see no green staining at all. So these animals were completely lacking the stereocillin protein. And so this protein uh, in a previous publication has been shown to be important for coupling the outer hair cell bundle to an overlying membrane. It's known as the tectorial membrane, which is pictured right here. And so that's critical for delivering the sound stimulus and deflecting the sensory hair bundle. And immunogold staining shows that it's, it's located right at the tips of these stereocilia. You can see the puncta right here and also in between these modified microvilli of the hair bundle. If you take off this tectorial membrane, you can see where the hair bundle actually makes contact and where the stereocillin protein is expressed. And so that's shown right here schematically. It's forming these top connectors that connect the hair bundle to the overlying tectorial membrane and these side-to-side -side connectors that connect the individual stereocilia together to allow it to behave as a cohesive bundle of cilia. So we looked at our animals and we wanted to wiggle hair bundles and we found that the transduction currents in this case were, were quite normal. The heterozygote animal shown in black and the homozygous animal shown in red. So transduction was not disrupted in this case. However, when we looked at the DPOAE assay, again, this is measuring outer hair cell function, we found no responses, as you can see summarized right here, whereas the heterozygote animals had responses equivalent to those of wild type. Because the DPOAE is important, an important response contributing to overall auditory function, we also found that these animals had very elevated ABR thresholds. Again, auditory brainstem responses, the scalp electrodes placed on the back of the head. These animals were not profoundly deaf because their inner hair cells were still functioning, but the outer hair cell dysfunction that I mentioned contributes to the elevated responses we see here. And so our thinking then was, well, let's package the 
stereocilin gene into AAV vectors and deliver that into the inner ears of these mice. The challenge in this case is that the packaging capacity, of course, of AAV is limited. 4.5 kb uh, on average is about the, the maximum that you can get into an AAV vector, whereas the stereocilin coding sequence is 6.3 kb. And so that wasn't going to fit. And we explored several different strategies. And we decided to use an in-tin approach where we could separate this into two different components and use protein recombination to see if we could get the full-length stereocilin. So this is the predicted structure of the stereocilin protein. And we wanted to consider carefully where we were gonna divide this. And we looked at regions in the middle, right in here, and developed a few different approaches. So intins were placed at both ends of this divided stereocilin coding sequence. So translation then leads to protein splicing and hopefully the full length protein. And so here are four different strategies that we tried. And the first two where we placed the intines, uh, we tried that and it really didn't work. And what we realized, uh, a postdoc in my lab in particular, was that there's a signal sequence at the end terminus of the protein. And she hypothesized that maybe this signal sequence is carrying the protein to the desired intracellular region where uh, assembly might be occurring. And so if you've got this divided into two different components, maybe this component ends up at the proper location, but this one does not. And so she cleverly took the signal sequence, tacked it on to this end, and then tried this strategy again. And in that case, we found that this particular combination worked. And that's shown right here. The, this little band that we can see is equivalent to the wild type. And so we were able to show recombination in uh, using this intent approach with a signal sequence tacked onto both ends. And so we packaged those into AAV vectors and delivered those into the ears of stereocilin mutant mice. And here's another example where we see nice stereocilin staining in the wild type animals, lack of staining in the mutant animals. And in those injected with the dual vectors, we see that we can get recovery of stereocilin staining. Now, in this case, it's not every outer hair cell. And on average, we got about 63% of outer hair cells were targeted with the dual vector approach and able to re-express the stereocilin protein. We looked at higher magnification using scanning electron microscopy, and that's shown right here. So these are normal looking hair bundles as you've seen previously. The stereocilin mutant uh, hair bundles, you can see they've got disrupted morphology. They look a little bit disorganized. They're not badly disorganized, but not quite uh, as cohesive as you would see in a wild type hair bundle. And so that's evident here again at higher magnification. But after treatment with the dual vectors, we could see many of the cells had recovered and have proper hair bundle morphology. And so here are examples right here where we see nice looking hair bundles in a homozygous mutant animal, and a few bundles that are not recovered. So presumably these are the ones that received the dual vector transduction and recovered normal stereocilin expression, preserving hair bundle morphology. Whereas these 
perhaps did not receive the dual vector transduction, maybe a single or, or maybe nothing at all. We can't really tell, but you can see their morphology has not been restored. Looking at higher magnification still, here's a pair side by side in a homozygous animal that's been treated, this bundle having nice restored morphology. But if you look closely, you can actually see the protein product from our gene therapy intervention. So these connections you see, these are the top connectors that are formed by the stereocilin protein. And so those are lacking over here. And so we have the disorganized stereocilia, but when those are clearly present, we've got a tightly clustered bundle of stereocilia and a cohesive functional hair bundle. Well, at least it looks like it's gonna be functional, but of course we wanted to do that physiologic assay. And so we measured the distortion product otoacoustic emission. And here's a little more detail in how this assay works. We actually play two different sounds. These are two pure tone frequencies introduced into the ear simultaneously. And the distortion product is given as a simple prediction. It's two times the first frequency minus the second frequency gives you this predicted frequency right here and shown at higher magnification, you can see these peaks. This is the distortion product. And so this one has a threshold of about 30 decibels. And so this is the ear's attempt to turn up the volume for a faint sound. In the stereocellin mutant animals, we see a, the noise floor, but we really don't see those peaks at all. So the outer hair cells are not functioning to drive cochlear amplification. We don't see the distortion product. And so that's why we think we have diminished auditory function. But after treatment with our dual vector approach, we see that these peaks appear again. And so this is a good sign that the outer hair cells are functioning with thresholds equivalent to those of wild type in this particular case. And so here are the distortion products across the frequency spectrum. All of the animals are shown in green and the five best are shown here in purple. And so in those five best case scenarios, we're coming very close to the wild type response with this dual vector approach. And looking at the auditory brainstem responses, you can see wild type responses here, elevated responses in the stereocillin animals, but after dual vector treatment, we can see thresholds that are back in some cases close to normal, about 30 decibels. And here again are all of the animals plotted as a function of frequency with the five best shown here in purple. So these were encouraging data for us. And to wrap things up, I'll, I'll just uh, conclude that we think that the stereocillin mutations are the second most common form of genetic hearing loss. The most common form is known as GJB2, accounting for, for 25 to 30% of genetic hearing loss. In this case, we think it accounts for, for 16 to, to maybe 18% of genetic hearing loss. The mice that we've developed, we think are a good model for the human condition. They have dysfunctional outer hair cells, loss of cochlear amplification, just like the humans do. And we've developed the dual vector strategy, which in this case, using the, again, the AAV9 PHPB capsid was sufficient for, for dual vector transduction and re-expression of the stereocillin protein and preservation of hair bundle morphology. 
we saw we could recover the DPOAE response and ABR thresholds. And so we think that this kind of a strategy could be further developed and could potentially uh, help some of the patients who have this form of hearing loss, up to 2.3 million patients worldwide. And so we're working towards that goal at the moment, and we hope that in the future we'll be, we'll be able to talk about some, some clinical trials with a, a dual vector stereocillin gene therapy. Great. Well, I'm going to stop there. I know I've thrown a lot of, of data at you and a lot of new terms, perhaps, if you're not familiar with inner ear gene therapy, but I'm happy to, to spend some time and take okay, some questions. So thank you very much for your attention. A little bit busy the end of the year. All right. So I'm just, yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Hart. Great presentation. I hope our audience also enjoyed this presentation as much as I did. Okay, without any further delay, let's get to our Q&A section. So one question is from Erdem and he's interested about the one slide talks about the AAV9 applied to human tissue in vitro, which is published in 2022 from Dr. Wan Berlin. So the question is, what kind of tissue were the immunofluorescent picture you show in that slice? And is this the vestibular or arranging? Yeah, good question. So when the tissue was extracted in these cases, uh, both cochlear tissue and vestibular tissue has been extracted. Um, we have found that the vestibular tissue from humans survives better. Um, so we've used that in vitro, it survives for up to 10 days. And so in that particular case, that image was vestibular tissue. We've done the experiment in some cases where we've got cochlear tissue, it just doesn't survive the in vitro conditions as well. Um, but we've tried it and we have seen some cochlear hair cells transduced as well. But yes, to answer your question, that was vestibular tissue showing vestibular hair cells being transduced with, with that vector. And, and for sure, you can take a look at the paper that was published recently in the journal Biomolecules if you'd like to see more of those details. All right, thank you so much. Uh, the second question is from Xiao Shu Pen, and he says, very interesting presentation. So the question is, is it possible for AAV to achieve bigger protein gene replacement? For example, the MYO7A, MYO7A. Um, sorry, I missed a bit of the question. Oh, Would you mind okay. repeating it? Uh, sure. Uh, he wanted uh, to achieve uh, to use the AAV to achieve bigger protein gene replacement. Ah, right. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Um, well, so that's what we've done with the stereocillin gene, right? This is uh -huh. too large to fit in a single AAV. You're right. Myosin seven A is uh, mutations in that gene cause Usher syndrome type one B. And the coding sequence for myosin 7A is also too large to fit into a single AAV. Um, there is a group in Florida um, led by Shannon Boy who has developed a gene splicing approach for uh, re-expression of the myosin 7A gene. And that seems to be working in the retina for, for a recovery of, of retinal function, at least in animal models. Um, I don't think it's been tried in the ear as of yet. 
Um, but either, either that or an intin approach like we've used, uh, I think could be used in the ear for re-expression of myosin 7A. Yeah, good question. All right. Okay, the next question is from Ewan Phillips. So uh, the question is, what is the biggest translation challenge for AAV-based therapeutics? The translational challenge. What is the, the biggest translational challenge? Well, yes. for, yeah, for auditory function, uh, it has not been attempted yet. There's no clinical trials using AAVs in the inner ear. There's a few groups who are beginning to approach that. Um, but I, I think we're lagging a little bit behind some of the other fields, such as the, the retinal field, where there are now approved AAV vectors for, for uh, retinal gene therapy, um, and, and a couple other fields where AAVs are, are starting to, to come online. Um, I think we will get there in the auditory field within the coming uh, few years. Some, some of these groups may, may be approaching that within the next three to five years, I think. Um, but yes, that, that's going to be a challenge. Demonstrating safety and effectiveness is, just hasn't been done yet in the ear. So once we get over that hurdle, I think you'll see many more of these start to come online. Got you. Okay, the next question is from Sandra. Uh, it's about the age of the mice. She asked, how old are the treated mice? Are they embryos? Yeah, so these mice, everything I showed you was uh, postnatal. Um, it's, it's during the first postnatal week, which is uh, when it's surgically most accessible to be able to access the inner ear space. We've tried this in adult and, and more mature animals. The difficulty is that the inner ear is embedded in the temporal bone, which is the densest, hardest bone of the body. And it's really difficult to get through that without destroying the, the delicate structures inside. Um, so we haven't, we haven't done that in the mouse. What I can tell you is that I think in humans, it's gonna be much more accessible, much easier to get into that space. You can imagine the neonatal mouse inner ear is really quite small. And so technically challenging to access that space. But in humans, I think it's gonna be doable. Um, otolaryngology surgeons are used to accessing that space when they, they place cochlear implants and perform other surgeries. So, so I think that the expertise may already exist to access that space. And the other bit of good news I can share with you, uh, I showed one data slide um, from a non-human primate ear that's been injected at adult stages. And, and so we know that the vectors can get introduced into the adult human, uh, sorry, the non-human primate at adult stages without causing damage and while allowing for successful and efficient transduction of the sensory hair cells. All right, awesome. But uh, Sandra, she has another follow-up question. So can you give me, uh, give her more information on your synthetic AAV? So what exactly do you target on the hair cells? Yeah, so, so the AAV uh, capsid that has been designed by Ben Deverman uh, and Vivian Grandu at, at Caltech, it was designed to cross the blood-brain barrier. And, and while it does that in some strains of mice, uh, it doesn't seem to in others, and it doesn't seem to in, in primates. 
Um, so in our case, we think this may actually be an advantage because we don't need to cross the blood-brain barrier where we're injecting the vector is directly into the inner ear space. There are fluids that bathe the sensory hair cells and the neurons there. Um, it's similar to CSF, but it's, it's known as paralymph. And so we can directly inject into that fluid-filled space. This is inside of a barrier that's kind of analogous to the blood-brain barrier. In the ear, we call it the blood labyrinthine barrier, but we're already inside that barrier. And so we think it may actually limit, uh, limit the vector from crossing out, from, from passing across that barrier into the systemic circulation. So, so it may work to our advantage in this case. And so then the question is what receptor is being targeted on the hair cell by these AAV capsids? And, and that's not entirely clear yet. You know, most of the data in the field has been just empirical. People such as myself, various other labs have tried a number of, of different AAV capsids, the conventional capsids, as well as other synthetic ones. And it's really been a trial and error process trying to figure out which capsids are efficient and, and work at targeting the, the sensory hair cells. So we've landed on this one, AAV9PHPB, as being a particularly good vector, but I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that that's the only one that could be useful. I think there may be others that could target the sensory hair cells as well. Right, okay, the next question is about the CRISPR-Cas9, the Cas9 protein. Uh, Sandra asks, do you have uh, ever observed any off-target effects using the Cas? Yeah, so we, we did take a look at that and we did not see any off-target effects. Um, we screened at a couple different stages. You may want to eventually screen at, at later time points. We went out to a, a month and two months of, of time and did not see much in the way of off-target effects. Our particular strategy, uh, and I didn't go into these details, but it's in the paper that I cited, which is by Georgi et al. from 2019. The strategy was to use the PAM site to target the mutation of interest. And we found greater selectivity there using a guide RNA that recognized both mutant and wild type allele, but the PAM site was what allowed for the specificity. And so we think that, that the off-target effects were minimal in that case, and, and we didn't see any overt uh, toxicity or, or sequence degradation in off-target sites. All right, okay, the uh, next question is a follow-up question from Xiao Shu and about uh, the administration to the mice. So other than the local administration, is there any possible way for the systemic administration of the AAV for gene therapy to treat the hearing loss? <coughs> so we haven't done that in our lab, but I know there is another group, uh, Richard Smith's group, who has done systemic injection of AAV vectors. Uh, I think you lose some of the advantages of inner ear gene therapy by systemic delivery. You would have to give a, a much larger dose if, you're, if it's gonna be systemic for sure. Of course, there may be many more off-target effects. Um, those sorts of things would, would dissuade me from a systemic approach myself. I think one of the advantages of targeting the inner ear is it really is this confined fluid-filled space. And we're only injecting very small volumes. 
one microliter in the mouse. And when we scale up to a human, we think that's gonna be maybe 10 microliters of, of virus. So even if that were to escape into the systemic circulation, it's gonna be so diluted that we think any uh, side effects or off-target effects would be very minimal as opposed to a systemic delivery. So, so I really favor the local de delivery over systemic, mm -hmm. even though Richard Smith's group has, has had some success with systemic delivery. I don't have that citation off the top of my head, but if you look for that name, RJ Smith and inner ear gene therapy, you should be able to find it. All right, that's very informative information. Thank you. And the, another question is about the clinical trial. So Sandra, she's interested in the legal basis in, U, in US regarding the gene therapy in humans. So. Yeah, the clinical trials. Oh, right. Well, I'm not a lawyer, so don't ask me the <laughs> basis. <laughs> yeah, it's about the regulation questions. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's an okay. important question for sure. Um, and, and I think there's growing comfort with, with gene therapies, particularly with AAV-based gene therapy and, and maybe some of the, the lenti vector uh, gene therapies that are starting to come online. Um, so, so hopefully, as you know, as long as there's no adverse events, I think that there will be more and more comfort with the, these things. And I think the regulatory barriers may be coming down. Um, let's keep our fingers crossed that, that we do a good job and they, everybody stays safe, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So another question is about the stem cell. Uh, he asked, is it possible to use stem cell as the delivery vehicle for gene therapy in hearing loss treatment? If yes, would there be any synergetic effect between stem cell and the gene therapeutic payload? <laughs> yeah, so that's an, a good question. Uh, the stem cell field for hair cell regeneration is, is not uh, as far along as I think treating monogenic hearing loss. Uh, there's a lot of interest in, in stem cell uh, approaches for sure. Um, the inner ear does not have resident stem cells, so that's one of the limitations. Uh, the approaches are to see if you can promote stem cell nests in some native supporting cells, allowing those to, to eventually become sensory hair cells. Could you target those cells at, with a gene therapy? Yes potentially. I'm not sure if that's what the question was, was addressing, but uh, I think that's one strategy that, that could be pursued. Okay. Uh, I think we have run out of time. Let me share my screen. So, but we will collect all the questions to Dr. Holt and uh, uh, we will get back to the audience through the email. So please note that Creative BioLabs regularly invite brilliant experts in the field of life science and biotechnology to present their most recent findings in our webinar series. And please visit our website often and subscribe our social media so that you won't miss our upcoming webinars. And that's all for today. Thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.